going to start by telling you a little story about my darling granddaughter, Fiona, who calls herself Fona. She's three, and I decided this week that I, I wanted to teach her to play Mother May I. Anybody ever play that with your friends in the neighborhood? Okay, have you played it with your children or grandchildren? Think about what you're teaching them. Polite manners, Mother May I. How to count, how to take no, you may not but you may take three steps backward or, you know, whatever it is you do. So I was explaining to her, this is how you play mother, may I? And the first one that gets to mother wins. Now she's the only one playing, so she, it's a shoe in, but she hadn't quite got there yet. So she's standing and she's doing the usual thing. Mother, may I? And, she, and I'd give her yeses and noes and whatever. And she got about three steps into this process. Maybe asked me three times, mother, may I? And then she looks up at me and she's the cutest thing on the planet. And she said, Mother, may I give you a hug? <laughs> yes, you may! And she comes running to me, game over, you know? And I thought, A, this kid is way smarter than the old gray mare that's playing the games with her, so I got to start praying really diligently. But two, I just started thinking about faith like a child. You know how many times we go to the Lord and we're like, Father, may I take two baby steps forward? When all he wants us to say is, Father, can I just give you a hug and cut to the chase and get all the way there? Isn't that a sweet thing? Take that for what it's worth. Off you go. Thanks for coming today. <laughs> now, today I want to talk to you about the water of life. As I mentioned two weeks ago when we were looking at the labor, the brazen labor, I would come real close to saying it's my favorite piece of furniture <clears throat> in the study of the tabernacle until I get to the next one and the next one and the next one. But this is so deep and rich to me because it is about the word of God. And <clears throat> pardon me, it is that place of cleansing and refreshing and it's an endless supply, always open and available to anyone who will but come to it and receive all the blessing that it contains. And as we were going through all the details and the serpent in, on the pole lifted up as a picture of Jesus and the fact that there were no dimensions given and made from the mirrors and all those details, did any of you stop to think, where did they get the water? Because think, they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. It's not like there's a hose long enough or any kind of tap or spigot. So I've looked through scripture, and though scripture does not record the specific source, I imagine that they got this washing water, and they must have gone through gallons and gallons and gallons every day for 40 years, they must have received this water from the same source they got their drinking water. And so that's what I want to take, a take time to look at today. We have two records of this miraculous provision of water. The first for your notes is in Exodus 17. We're going to go there first, but for your notes, we will also be going to Numbers chapter 20. So in the wilderness, on more than one occasion, God led his people to a place of need. But he didn't even do that until after he'd given them time to develop a pretty strong thirst. Without water, we're going to die. This is not a surprise to the Father. 
He knows we need this life-giving necessity, and he purposely brings his people to a place where the thirst is so great that they, have, they can't deny it because he wants to be their provider. He wants to show them that he is a loving father who gives good gifts to his children and provides for every need that they have. And so the Lord purposely brings them this, to this place so they will recognize their need turn to him and then watch him supply abundantly and joyfully, completely willing to bless them. Incredible thirst, satisfying God. That's the lesson he wanted them to learn. So at the beginning of the wilderness wandering, the Lord instructed Moses to take his staff, strike a very specific rock, and, uh, and Moses was familiar with the rock because we have come to call this area that they happen to be in the backside of the desert. Uh, it's a place Moses met God in the burning bush. The Bible calls it here, we're going to read Horeb. That's kind of a code for Mount Sinai. So that's the location they're in. And for 40 years, Moses had been wandering around through this same desert area. He was really familiar with his territory. And listen, if you meet God in a burning bush, you're going to sort of remember the details. So there must have been a very specific and distinctive rock near that area. And God tells him to take his staff, and he's going to go and strike the rock. Now remember, Moses is... Uh, just come from having been a shepherd to another man's sheep for 40 years. Do you, that's like his life's job description. He's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, and now he's going to go shepherd his father's sheep. 40 years, 40 years, same area. It's, you know, God prepared him for the job, let me tell you. The staff is the same one that would become a serpent. And in Pharaoh's court, Moses' serpent would eat up the serpents of Janus and Jambres. It's the same staff that he used by God's instruction to stretch out his hand over the waters of the Nile, the waters of Egypt, and they became blood. And God instructed him, take that same staff, strike the ground, and the dust became lice that infected the nation. Same staff, same God, pointed at the sky, and fire and hail rained down. And use that same staff and a plague of locusts descended upon Egypt by the word of God. And that so all Israel and Pharaoh too would know that God alone is God. He told Moses, take that staff and stretch out your hand over the Nile and the waters will be divided. He said, lift up your staff. This is Exodus chapter 14, verse 16 for your notes. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. It was a plain old stick, y'all, but a powerful tool in the hand of God's man or God's woman. Every time I think about this just simple tool that a shepherd had in his hand that God put to glorious, miraculous use, I think, what do I have in my hand? What do you have in your hand? I think about right now, there's a ministry taking place here right down the hallway. There may be a woman or two down that hallway with a dirty diaper in their hand. But what a ministry that is to the mom who's in this room. And then that ministry done, she gets to pick up and hold in her hand the next generation. 
what a precious thing that is and how powerful is her influence and her ministry to the child as well as to the mom who's in here. What do you have in your hand? A ukulele? A soundboard? A video camera? Right now, y'all are holding a sword in your hands. The Lord will take and use the most everyday thing, and he will magnify it and glorify it for his purposes if the hand that's holding it is willing. There's a powerful lesson to be learned there. In Nehemiah's day, I love this story. At some point in the reconstruction, the enemy was just assaulting the builders. And so Nehemiah instructed those people, get your trowel in one hand, keep working, but hold your sword in the other. And that's what we are instructed to do. Whatever tool the Lord has given you in one hand, using it for God's purpose and the sword in the other. And if something happens and you have to drop one or the other, don't let it be your sword. Hang on to your sword and God will restore and use whatever is, is just ordinary in your life. Now, in Exodus chapter 17, we're going to read this story of the water from a rock. And mind you, it was just in chapter 15 that they sang the song of victory. The whole nation Israel, they're singing, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Chapter 15, the, the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. Chapter 16, manna. Chapter 17, the what have you done for me lately attitude rears its ugly head. And here we read in verse 1, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. Now, before we go on, how did they know they were supposed to camp at Rephidim? Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. See, God has them right where he wants them. They are there by his divine design, and the verse continues... There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is the first time they sing their theme song. And they're going to sing it for 40 years and pass it on to their children. Verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now listen, y'all. If I was in that camp and I saw Moses walking by with that staff, a symbol of God's power and judgment, I'd be all about repentance real quick. I'd be saying, forgive me, Lord, because I know what that man and that staff combined with our God can do. And so God is speaking because, you know, that staff is nothing without this God. It's just an old stick. Verse 6, God is speaking. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, 
and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. And water, y'all, abundant water, poured forth freely and satisfied the millions of Israel and their flocks and herds. Can you imagine? If it, I mean, this is a river of water. Because if it was some kind of little, little trickle, can you imagine being person number one million standing there with your cup? It'd be decades before you ever got to the source. This is an abundant flowing river that satisfies everyone and all of their animals as well. It's amazing, this story. But that's the end of it. You know, it's period, carriage return. God moves on to the next thing. Not one word is recorded here. Well, Moses does name the place. That's recorded. He names it test and quarrel because they tested God and quarreled. But that's it. There's nothing here about the response of the people. We don't see that they were grateful. We don't hear any kind of praise chorus rising from this incident. Nothing is mentioned at all about the response of the people to this miraculous needed provision. And I think in great part, it's because God is painting a picture for us. And he's not painting a picture of us. We already know what we look like. He is letting us know that this is a story about his son. He is letting us know what Jesus Christ looks like as our rock and our provider and the living water. So he tells us just what we need to know to clearly see Jesus. Now in Numbers chapter 20, we're going to go there. Near the end now of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the first generation has died. The second generation is going to see a repeat performance because either they were not alive when the original water from the rock happened or they were too young to remember it. Either way, God wants them to know that he has been their provider these 40 years and just because they're going to cross over Jordan into the promised land, he's not finished with the job. They are not finished with their God, and he is not finished with them. As he has provided for 40 years in the wilderness, he will still be their source, their abundant source in the promised land. And you know, y'all, just because you move out of a tent into a house or whatever applies to your life, out of college to the working world, out of singlehood into marriage, out of marriage into singlehood, whatever it may be, if you're moving from tent to another tent or to a house of some sort, it just don't think you're finished with God. He will still be the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and you will need him as much tomorrow as you did today and yesterday as well. None of us are ever going to move from a place where we need our provider to a place of self-reliance. That is an absolute fact. The water of life satisfies our every thirst and our every need. Why would you want to be without it? And so this time, Numbers chapter 20, Moses is instructed to take Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod that budded. It was a symbol not of judgment, but of a resurrected, fruitful life, brand new life from a dead stick. Unfortunately, Moses is going to lose his temper and a lot more, and yet water is going to pour forth and all will be satisfied, all except our father. 
And I will tell you as we get ready to read this story, this story ought to set you free. If you are a reluctant servant of the Lord and you're just kind of sitting back waiting and thinking, I either don't have anything to offer or I don't know if I really want to get involved or whatever that thing might be, because you perceive you cannot be a blessing to the people, even though the servant of God blows it, the people of God still get blessed and abundantly because God is a blessing God. And he will use the foolish things of this world if the foolish things are willing. So just get up off your duff and get in there and get in the game, okay? Take that for what it's worth. And you don't have to say, Mother, may I? Just do it. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. The Hebrew word for holy is Kodesh. This place name shares the same root. That's a clue from the Holy Spirit. This is a holy place. These people are traveling by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night led to this place, and it's called holy. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. Verse 2, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought us out the Lord's assembly into this wilderness? Did I just miss something there? <laughs> okay. The people thus contended, verse 3, with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregations and their beasts drink. Now for you diligent students, I want to point out that this is a great place to do a word study of rock. In this study today, in the Hebrew alone, there are three different Hebrew words. The first one, water from a rock, is like a large boulder. This one that's spoken of here is high and lifted up. It's like a cliff, a rock high above. It's an elevated rock. Keep that in mind and go study it for yourself. Verse 9, is that where I left off? You guys got to help me. I have a little dyslexia, and when I take my eyes off the page and look back down, words are swimming. So I have to ground myself here. Verse 9, is that what we're at? Okay, thank you. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord. That's how we know it's Aaron's rod, because they placed it in the holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. So go get it and bring it with you. Just as the Lord had commanded him, verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, now listen up, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock, not once, 
but twice with his rod. Can you imagine the fruit just flew off of that thing? Have y'all ever lost your temper and every bit of the fruit of the spirit that might have been growing on you just flies everywhere? Well, take it for what it's worth. Then Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock. Verse 12. Oh, no. Did I finish it? Struck the rock twice, and water came forth. I'm so excited about this, you guys. I can't hardly finish the sentence. Okay. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now that seems like a pretty harsh punishment for a man who has schlepped this ungrateful crowd around for 40 years. But we know from Luke chapter 12, verse 48 and elsewhere, to him who has been given much, much will be required. Moses had a revelation of God like no one else, and God held him accountable for that. And I know one of these days we're going to stand in glory and we'll take one look at our Savior and we will all of us declare, not, you were a little hard on me there, Lord. That was unfair. But all your ways are just and true. And we will worship him. The sin of unbelief is what they are accused of. Uh, whenever I see these words, I got to go look them up. And so the word believe in the Hebrew here means to support. So imagine putting these other words in the sentence. Because you did not believe me, you did not support me, confirm, be faithful. You did not stand firm. You did not trust. You did not believe in. Those are all the things that God is saying, Moses, you didn't do. You and Aaron both. So I went and I looked up our English word, believe, in an etymology dictionary. And do you know that it, they believe that it came from this Germanic language that literally means to love, to hold dear? Moses, you did not love me. Does that just break your heart? When you think of your own self, have you ever disbelieved God's promise or God's instruction? It's a sign of a lack of love, that we are not holding him dear. We are not trusting him. And God held him accountable. Now, if we look into the labor of God's word, we cannot help but tell ourselves the truth about this story. Moses sinned. He struck the rock in direct disobedience to the word of God, he misrepresented God, who was not angry with the people, and then he took credit for the miracle. God was painting chapter two of his picture of water from the rock story, and Moses ruined it. Christ is our rock, and he needed only to be crucified one time, struck, if you will, one time to cleanse us from all sin. And in doing that, he supplied all that was required of judgment and forgiveness of sin. And ever after, our needs, every one of them, will be satisfied by speaking to the rock of our salvation. That was a beautiful picture. God was just so eager to show it to his children, and Moses ruined it. Paul tells us that that rock followed them around in the desert. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. 
verse 1. Paul is writing, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. We call that manna. And all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. If you have a need, stand at the laver and let the water of life supply. The water they drew for the laver and the water they drank, I believe, came from the same source. He is the rock of our salvation. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the, the title rock becomes a name for our God, it says the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he, our God, the rock. That's Deuteronomy 32, four. So we want to let the washing water of the word always cleanse and refresh and the drinking water of the spirit help us to understand and to apply all that we learn here. We want to apply Jesus Christ to everything in our lives. At the end of all things, Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, Jesus says, it is done. You know, when he was crucified and he cried out, it is finished. I believe he was speaking of the entire sacrificial system and all of its requirements. Everything that was required, the blood of bulls and goats, the Passover lamb, all of it, was satisfied and perfected in Jesus Christ. It's finished. But now here at the end of all things, it is done. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil, sin and death. It's done. How, what a great and glorious day. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Are you all ready for that? He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely abundantly and all we have to do is speak to the rock do you need a cleansing are you thirsty you come to the water of the word and from it we draw an endless supply jesus said if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water john chapter 7 I saw a quote just recently from Elizabeth Elliot. She said, and I'm going to read this so I don't get her, misquote her. The word of God is like a straight edge, which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of scripture. If you are here today and you do not know Christ is your savior, and you're thinking all of this is just hooey, I used to think the very same thing. I understand what that thought process is like because it was mine. It's all just a bunch of hooey. I did not realize before I met Jesus Christ how crooked my thinking was. And if someone had read to me 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and I saw this list of sinners, I would have been offended, deeply offended to be lumped in with this group. Paul says, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And then I met Jesus Christ. And I began to wash my mind in the water of his word and straighten my thinking to come in line with his. And when I read that list, I realize there's not a sin I've missed. And Paul lets me know he doesn't think any more highly of you than I do. Because he said, such were some of you. And then he says in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11 for your notes. But you were washed. You were lavered is what that could be, how that could be translated. And then he goes on to say, after the washing, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What a privilege it is to be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. When I read of this man named Naaman, his story is recorded in 2 Kings 5. I really identify with this guy. Not because he was a Syrian general and the big dog in the Syrian empire. He was number two next to King Aram. But because he was a leper. Now, the pagan nations didn't treat a leper the same that a Hebrew would. You were able, if you were in a pagan nation and you had leprosy, you were still able to live among the people and function in your normal role. And this guy was the general of the army and had given many mighty victories to his king in that empire. But leprosy, y'all, is a very powerful picture in scripture of sin. It starts eating you alive from the outside in. It begins as just a tiny little irritation. And then as it advances, it deadens every nerve. And it is a slow, hideous death. It reeks of everything that is vile to our senses. It is such a vivid picture of sin. And this man could no longer feel the effects of the leprosy that had permeated his body. And then he hears about a prophet in Israel, a man named Elisha. Now, I could go on and tell you a whole lot more about leprosy, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let you go study it. And as you start to learn the details of what, a leprosy, what leprosy does to you, look in the mirror of God's word and thank God for saving you from hell. Because it's a picture of a living hell. And this man was living it until he met this prophet named Elisha. And Elisha tells him, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. In other words, go wash and be cleansed. Leprosy cannot be cured and neither can sin. But we can be cleansed from both things. Naaman, and we're going to, we will, he received this new life. Because he put faith and obedience to the instructions that he was given. And that's the deal for us. We cannot bring any amount of worldly wealth to the situation. We can't bring fame or fortune. All we can do is obey the word of God. And then comes the blessing. Elisha's message to the leper is this. There is a real God in this universe. And he says, I am a servant of that God. Your cure is not in me, the servant. Your cure is not in the water. Your cure comes from the living God and obedience to him in faith. 
And if that one doesn't appeal to your sensibility and you think I'm not a vile leper, then maybe the story that we read in John chapter 5 is more your speed. Here we read about a man who would, had been ill for 38 years and he could not get himself into the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. It also can be translated house of flowing water. And he couldn't get into the pool in time to get healed. Now that account is recording the belief system of that day. It was a worldly system of man-made washing. And if you don't think that kind of thing still goes on today, go to Sedona. I can remember, it's been decades ago now, my husband and I went with a group of young marrieds from our Sunday school class on a day trip to Sedona. And I was just newly walking with the Lord at that time. And I had a little knowledge of the truth and absolutely no love to go along with it. And so we go into this shop and they had all kinds of beautiful rocks. My husband has a geology degree, so he always likes to look at, at you know, geodes and all kinds of stuff. Well, here were all these rocks and crystals and things. And the sales clerk walked up to one of the other ladies that was in our group and began to show her these various crystals and said, now, this one is for prosperity and this one is for good health. And then she reached in her pocket and pulled one out. And she says, and I carry this one in my pocket all the time. This one assures that I will be happy all day long. Now, I don't remember if this is the verbatim of that conversation. It's the impression I have of it because I was over here like vengeance with her flaming sword trying to get a rebuttal so I could rebuke this sinner and send her straight, you know, straight, straight. And, but then Sherry, the, the young lady that she was speaking to said, so let me understand, you put it in your pocket and you will be happy all day long. And yes, yes, that's exactly right. And she said... What happens if you change your pants and forget to put it in your pocket? And the sales clerk was kind of hemming and hawing a little bit, and Sherry said, I carry about in me the Lord Jesus Christ, and he promised me that he would never leave me or forsake me. And there's not a thing I have to do to remember to put him on or, or to pick him up, because if I had to do something, that means my happiness would depend on me. But the joy of the Lord abides in me every day, all day. And now, again, I don't remember if that was the exact verbatim conversation, but it's the impression that lingers and teaches me still to this day. It was a worldly system, and our world is finding all kinds of pools to try to dive into and wash in. But ladies, dive into the water of the word, and you will never be disappointed there. To have the joy of the Lord abide with you at all times is great. Now, the world is not going to be able to satisfy that deep and abiding thirst for righteousness. And you may find a temporary source, but it is just that. It'll only be temporary. And again, once you have tasted the truth, why would you want to go anywhere else? Nothing else will satisfy Jesus did not condone or condemn that worldly system of washing. What he did was go to the man with the greatest need. He addressed the need and he cured, healed that man. That day, that man who had been sick for 38 years met the water of life and received it. Now, there's just one more I want to draw attention to, just in case you don't identify yet with the vile leper or this worldly wise, yet impotent, lame man. 
This one will be for you. John chapter 9, we read about a man who was born blind. This man did not even seek Jesus. He was seeking alms for the poor. That was his gig, and he was content in it. And then enter Jesus Christ into this man's world. Verse 6 of John chapter 9, we read that Jesus spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to the man's eyes. And then he told him, go wash. Go to the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. But it can also be translated a gushing forth as of water. So Jesus, I wonder, y'all, when I read this story, you remember how he made Adam out of the dust of the earth? Is he just making a new set of eyeballs, optic nerves, and all the rest of the stuff that happens in your brain out of the dust of the earth? And I got to say, mud in the eyes, blind or no, had to be kind of an irritant. I'm always amazed how God sometimes uses irritation to get me moving in the right direction. And so this man goes away, he washes, and he comes back seeing. Jesus initiated the entire miracle, the entire relationship. It was all on Jesus to begin. I know he did that with me, but I was all three of these guys. I was a leprous, sin-sick sinner, worldly, content in it, content-ish. Is there anything more annoying in the world than a know-it-all 16-year-old? Anybody have that experience? Now, I'm not talking about 16-year-old you know now. Look back. For some of us, it's a pretty long look. But I'll tell you, there is only one teenager in the history of mankind that really actually knew more than his parents, and he was growing up a carpenter in Nazareth. But I thought I knew it all. And, and how obnoxious is that? I was blind, but now I see. I love this man's story. This man underwent a progression of faith like mine, and maybe like yours as well. First, he just acknowledged Jesus as a man. Then as more information, and he had a little time to think about what had happened, he started to see him as a man of God, a prophet. But by the end of this story, he calls him Lord, and he believes in him. Let's just take a quick look. I think as the light began to dawn on more than his optic nerve, he takes us through this progression of faith that is absolutely amazing. And what he does, we're going to look at uh, John chapter 9, starting in verse 11. What he does is he is questioned and harangued by these religious leaders. He meets every argument with his testimony. Sisters, your testimony will beat an argument all day long, every day. So he says, verse 11, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went away and washed and I received sight. Look at verse 15. They asked him again and he said to them, and I love this. It's like, guys, I was blind five minutes ago. I'm just telling you my testimony. This is all I know. He says, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. This man, blind from birth, is you and me. And as we spend time with the Lord and in his word, we are going to undergo a change 
We are going to go line upon line, precept upon precept. We are going to have unfolding and uh, augmented understanding of who Jesus Christ is. But we can't do it if we don't spend time in his word. One of the dangers of going to a church where you are really well-fed, well-fed sheep sometimes become lazy. And they love to be spoon-fed without going to any effort. It is up to you to draw near and pick up your own sword and train yourself to use it. And God will meet you there every time. And so, like this man, I just appreciate his story so much. I am no PhD. I am no formally taught Bible scholar. I don't speak Hebrew. I don't speak Greek. But just like he said in verse 25, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And when he saw Jesus face to face for the first time after his sight had been given him, he said in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you, and we bless your name, and we thank you again for the water of life. Thank you for our perfect redemption, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It was paid for by the precious cleansing blood of our Savior, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would continue, please, please draw us near through the washing of water with the word. We no longer are those leprous, lame, or blind people that we were when you found us. And now we want to be people, salt and light in this world, people who walk worthy of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Oh, go now and adore him, Christ the Lord.